0: What is up everybody welcome back to another episode of the rewired soul podcast and today my guest is tim harford and if you haven't heard of him i'm first off i'm surprised <laughs> um, but he is uh, a best-selling author uh one of his first books was the undercover economist. And most recently he released a book called the data detective. All right. And I find this topic so, so, so important. Like we are given stats, statistics, and so much on a regular basis. And especially, especially during this time of COVID over the last year and a half, we're constantly thrown numbers, right? Death rates, infection rates, you know, there's, there's, numbers about vaccines. And I am in no way a math guy. I, I, as many of you know, I like, you know, psychology and, you know, philosophy and all these other things and numbers just aren't my thing. But Tim Harford in his book, The Data Detective, he gives a lot of tips and tools and practical advice for how we're viewing data. And I've read quite a few books about this, and it's one of my my favorites. It is very accessible to anybody and it'll help you look at numbers better. So in this conversation, we talk a lot about the psychology behind how we view numbers and questions we need to ask ourselves when we're viewing numbers, right? Like what's missing from this research? What's missing from this data? What's missing from this polling Information, so many different things that we can just ask ourselves and just kind of get curious. And sometimes we don't have all the answers, but these are things that Tim and I discuss in this episode. But yeah, he's a really, really cool guy, and he's constantly, you know, uh, you know, working on stuff. He has a podcast, and I'm gonna link all this stuff down below. So make sure after this episode, or even right now, even if you want to do it right now, make sure you're following him over on Twitter, so you stay up to date with all this stuff, and grab a copy of The Data Detective. I'm also going to link uh, some of his other books down below as well, and some of them have different titles for international versions and stuff like that. You know how it is. If you're a reader, you know how that works, so I'm going to link a few of the books down below. All right, but while you're down in the description, if you're not yet, take a second and make sure you're following me on Instagram and Twitter. 1 because I love interacting with all you guys and talking and like a lot of you reach out in DMs or give book suggestions and stuff like that but Two, I'm always posting about not only new episodes but what books I'm reading. Uh, these podcasts, like this episode with Tim, I recorded a couple weeks ago, so you'll get to see who upcoming guests are and stuff. And I don't know, I'm a fan. I like knowing what's what's in the pipeline. So make sure you're following me on Instagram and Twitter at the Rewired Soul. All right, but anyways, this is an awesome conversation. I'm so glad Tim took some time out to chat with me. But yeah, without further ado, here's my conversation with Tim Harford about his new book, The Data Detective. right hello tim thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today i really
1: appreciate it it's my pleasure chris thanks for asking me
0: absolutely so yeah uh we're we're going to be talking about the important topic of of data today but for my few listeners out there who do not yet know you can you give us a little bit of uh your background and what inspired you to write the data detective
1: sure so my name's Tim Harford, I, I write a weekly column for the Financial Times called The Undercover Economist and uh, I have a book called The Undercover Economist as well That 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 made a bit of a splash about 15 years ago so mm. a lot of people know me for my writing about economics and people in podcast land may also mm. know my podcast Cautionary Tales which is all about mm. stories of disaster, some of which are funny and some of which are tragic but in each case I tell the story but then I try to, to draw out the lessons what can mm-hmm. we learn what does what does the science tell us about this or the social science but another thing that I've been doing over the years is presenting a BBC radio show called more or less mm-hmm. and more or less is a program about numbers and how numbers can be used to illuminate the world and they can also be used to deceive us about the world mm-hmm. And for a long time I, I was working on this show and uh, it's, it's quite big in the UK in particular and people encouraged me to, to write a book and for a long time I, I didn't want to write a book <laughs> about statistics. And uh, I just thought there were so many good books out there. It's been done so many times. I don't really, I'm not feeling it. I don't really have anything to add. Mm-hmm. But over the last few years, I came to realise that maybe I do have something to add and there were really two things. One was the realisation that so much of what we believe or disbelieve is not about the logic. It's you know, it's not a mathematical mistake that we're making when we get things wrong. It's about our emotions. Yeah. It's about our preconceptions, our biases, our political tribes. And so I really wanted to to write a book that helped people think about that as well as thinking about the arithmetic. Mm. The other thing was I realized that maybe... Those of us who talk about numbers and who are in, say, the fact-checking game or who, who, as I did, presented radio programs about numbers, that maybe we were falling into a trap. And the trap was too much debunking, too many stories, too many articles about how this politician had lied. That politician had led us astray. This company was selling us toothpaste and the stats were all wrong <laughs> or, or whatever it was. And by constantly giving examples of statistics done wrong, we, which, which are important. I mean, fact-checking is important. I've got yeah. no problem with that. But in doing that, we were maybe creating an impression that the statistics were always <laughs> false yeah. and that you shouldn't ever believe them. And so I wanted to take, really take that on head on. Mm. So those were the two big things, a realism about the psychology of reasoning about statistics and a a more constructive positive agenda saying numbers can show us important truths about the world as well as being used to, to deceive us.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that that's kind of how I stumbled across this book and your work in general, because not not too long ago, I, I got really interested in just kind of human irrationality. And, yeah. you know, and so I got into the, you know, I started reading the work of like Daniel Kahneman and Dan Ariely. And then I really started wondering, you know, especially when it comes to data and statistics, I was, I was like, okay, uh, so for example, like death rates, right? And it always seems like, no matter what the person's agenda is, they can attribute, you know, uh, the the data to something that they're trying to change, right? Like, oh, the 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 death rates are coming from you know depression, and it's a mental health organization, or the death rates are coming from fast food, and it's you know this, and and there's always seems to be data that you could take to argue your point. So I was like, well, that's kind of weird because there has to be some kind of truth out there but i'm not really a math guy and that's what i loved about your book
1: because it goes more into the psychological aspect um but yeah ab- absolutely i mean the the often the the math is not that complicated I and mean, mm-hmm. sometimes is. sometimes statistics are, can be a very complex subject but very often it's quite basic stuff like um what's the context like is this number going up or is it going down mm-hmm. um is it you know, is it a really big number or a small number? Sometimes it helps, for example, to say, well, let, let's say it's a, it's a dollar amount. You're talking about the national debt or you're talking about the deficit mm-hmm. or spending on the Department of Defense. Well, how much is that in dollars per person in, in the US each year? That, that sort of context can be, can be remarkably clarifying mm-hmm. and can tell you more than you know, all sorts of analyses of correlations and p-values and all the technical stuff yeah. you ever could
0: yeah and 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 I, I I was just actually just before we hopped on I was doing a little refresher of the book and something that you mentioned in there like like going back to your point of is this number big or is this small you talked about uh, in the book kind of having some numbers that you just you have locked in like uh, you know the the population of your country and uh, you know certain things so you can when you see these statistics you are like is this big or is this small because something I'm always thinking about too is in relationship to what, right? So, you know, if like 10% of the United States is going to be different than 10% of some small country that I've never heard of, right? Yeah, absolutely. And absolutely. Yeah. So so how does that kind of change our perception? And do you think more people are 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 learning about this or wanting to learn about this? Because there's so much news and data and studies being thrown at us to kind of sway our opinions. So I this is an important topic, but do you think more people are becoming interested in it?
1: Yeah. I mean it's it's, it's a good question and and I think that it's a slightly complex answer. Um mm-hmm. I should say you mentioned small countries that nobody's ever heard of. It's probably worth mentioning because people will be listening to this conversation all over the world. Yeah. The, yeah. The book has two different titles in different parts of the world. So the book is called The Data Detective in the United States and Canada and Guam. Um, interestingly enough, for, I think, historical book publishing reasons, it's called The Data Detective. Mm. And then everywhere else, for example, my, my home country, the UK, India, Australia, uh, etc. It, it's called How to Make the World Add Up. But mm. it's the same book. Um, so... so Back to this question of are are people getting better at this? Are people getting more interested in this? I see a bifurcation, yeah. uh, to, to use a ten dollar word. Um, <laughs> so it's it's actually never been easier to inform yourself, to really go deep, to look at the actual data, to look to you know to find it at the source, to, to download the data, to put it into a into you know, Microsoft Excel or perhaps a, a slightly more sophisticated program. Um, play around with it, plot some graphs, do all sorts of things. It's never been easier to do that. never been easier to find really well-informed experts. I mean, epidemiology Mm -hmm. Twitter is quite a place. It's astonishing. The the detailed, uh, polite, civil, expert, well-referenced, well-linked explanations you can find of any topic you like. With incredible speed, it's all out there. And yet the reason I say that there's a bifurcation is it's also never been easier to just be really dumb about this stuff. Right. I mean, I, I, my favorite fact-checking website just had to clarify that Stonehenge is not actually built out of concrete and was not constructed in the 1950s. And <laughs> photos of it from the 1850s are not in fact fake. And you just read it and you go, oh, the human race is just going to... Stupid itself out of existence. Yeah, like who um, actually this, believes this stuff, right? Yeah, I mean, and 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 of course, we, probably not that many people, but mm-hmm. but there are you know there are people out there, um, and and you know it's never been easier to to follow only the people you agree with. Mm. Uh, it's never been easier to just to judge somebody based on just some you know little screen grab or some text mm-hmm. circulating on Facebook or TikTok with no sources and nothing. It, it, so. A lot of this, and I emphasize this in The Data Detective, a lot of this is actually about not our skill, but our motivation. Mm. Do do we want to be smarter? Do we want to have an open mind? Do we want to tell the difference between what's true and what's not? Or are we just participating in some kind of, some weird political Mm -hmm. perversion of, say, cheering for our sports team? Um it, it's up to us. We can choose. You know, we can be smart or we can be dumb. And <laughs> and part part of the book is trying to help people ask fairly straightforward questions and encourage them to have the motivation to do that uh rather than to, to give people highly technical tools that actually they're not motivated to use. Mm.
0: Yeah, yeah, something uh you know I'm always thinking about, like like you mentioned, it's it's never been easier for just to, you know, play into our own confirmation bias. And and you mentioned like epidemiology, Twitter, and all this data and stats, and especially with the COVID, uh, you know, not only the pandemic and all those numbers, but also vaccination rates and all these things. And that's why I feel this is such an important topic, because, you know, what was it about a month ago, where, uh, you know, one of the, was it Moderna, where there was like a few instances of like, uh, you know, potentially deadly blood clots right and it was like well, uh, yeah that,
1: that one was the um i think both the janssen vaccine mm. and the astrazeneca oh, gotcha. uh, vaccine have had have had that issue it's extremely rare but it, it's real mm-hmm. um and then more recently uh the mrna vaccines which are moderna and pfizer i believe there's been some concern about um impossible heart mm-hmm. um heart weaknesses that they can induce and again just to emphasize these are these are very small effects, mm-hmm. but I think just to say to somebody, this is where it gets really interesting. To say, "Well, this is a really small effect; mm-hmm. like it's not, it's not very likely to happen." Well, that doesn't really mean anything. So, I, for me, it's helpful to try to find a comparison that makes sense. Mm. So, with the um, with the AstraZeneca and the Janssen vaccines, it's it's hard to know exactly how rare these things are because they're so rare. That's the great thing; they're yeah. so unusual that they're hard to measure. And and of course, some, sometimes these things happen and it's nothing to do with the vaccine either. So you're trying to compare the vaccinated population and the unvaccinated population. But um, l- let's say a working hypothesis might be that for a young person where there seems to be maybe more of a problem, there's like a one in a hundred thousand chance of, of a severe problem, not necessarily death, but a severe problem. Mm-hmm. So that's 10 in a million. Okay, well, what... You know, what else gives you a 10 in a million chance of death? Well, um, if you went for a ride on a on a motorcycle, um, that's probably more like two in a million chance of mm-hmm. death. So if you went for five rides on a motorcycle, that's maybe a, a, a 10 in a million, one in a hundred thousand chance of death. And um, I think that puts it into perspective. Like mm-hmm. it is dangerous to get on a motorcycle, right? I mean, it is dangerous, but it's not that dangerous. And... You have to be incredibly unlucky to have a few <laughs> motorbike rides and for that to to kill you. Yeah. But you know it could happen. So those are those are the the questions that we're trying to to answer and we're trying to shed light on. And uh, here in here in the UK, we, we've been we've, the AstraZeneca vaccine has been very widely used, and so the government has has been trying to to weigh up what the risks and the benefits are, <laughs> and to be very clear. Uh, with people and they've basically said look if you're over 40 this the chance of a problem is very low the chance that you get COVID and have serious consequences from getting COVID is quite high Mm -hmm. so you should just get whatever vaccine is available as soon as possible and then they've said well if you're in your 30s you should still get a vaccine as (laughs) soon as possible but if there's a if there's a safer vaccine than the AstraZeneca vaccine like the Pfizer vaccine, if that's available, then get that. And so, you know, it's not as simple as just scare stories about vaccines, trying to terrify people into not taking them, but it's also not as simple as saying, hey, the vaccines are safe. You know, I mean, the vaccines are safe, but safe it doesn't mean they're 100% safe. Yeah. So it's a really interesting case study in trying to think clearly about risk uh, to try to make the right decision for yourself and for other people, of course. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And and it's interesting, too, because, uh, you know, as we're talking about this and uh, you mentioned, you know, your show uh, Cautionary Tales, that's that's kind of just, you know, my whole philosophy around the content I make is what can we learn from this? Right. I read a ton and I'm always like, okay well, how can this help me in my daily life? And originally my YouTube channel started out with uh, just mainly about mental health and. I, I used to struggle a lot with anxiety and I know a lot of people in my audience do too and stuff, but what you're talking about, like, you know, with the motorcycle accidents and everything that has really helped. My anxiety, just being able to compare, right? Like, how how likely is a plane crash compared to how much driving I do on a daily basis, and all these other things? And and looking at those numbers has helped me out. It's helped me make you know my own health decisions with different uh, you know uh, medications I'm going to take or procedures I'm going to get. But uh, especially with COVID too, um, I don't know if you you looked at it in a similar way. But what helped me early on. To kind of gauge the severity of COVID last year and you know, in the early days, uh, when people, you know, people still to this day compare it to the flu, but I was like, Okay, how many people die from the flu each year? And I think in the, America it was like sixty or seventy thousand. I said, Okay, Chris, don't freak out until it reaches that number, right? And it didn't really take that long for it to reach that number. I'm like, Okay, this yeah. is serious. You know what Absolutely. I
1: mean? Yeah, and and of course, we don't lock down economies in order to fight the flu, but we did lock down in order to deal with COVID. And so mm-hmm. you realise, wow, it it would have been even worse if we hadn't taken um, what are actually very extreme measures. I mean, they've I, you know I think the the lockdowns have saved a very large number of lives. It's it's hard to dispute that, but that that doesn't. That doesn't mean the lockdowns were obviously the right thing to do. I mean, a huge disruption to people. Mm-hmm. And you, you realize, well, wow, the counterfactual. Like what would have happened without the lockdown? How many people would mm-hmm. have been infected and how quickly? Um, so yeah, it, it, it was, I think, very anxiety producing. And it was, it was interesting to be uh, living in that world where we, we were all suffering that same shock and that, that same anxiety mm-hmm. at the same time. Um, in some ways it's 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 an interesting and very different challenge now at a moment where a lot of people are saying well okay I'm double vaccinated I'm Mm -hmm. safe I'm not going to worry whereas for a lot of other people they will say well I still don't feel safe I can't you know I, I still don't want to take the mask off I don't want to shake hands with people and it's it's a really interesting challenge and and the statistics can only get you so far. I yeah. had a very interesting conversation on a on a Slate podcast, where it was me and a and a therapist mm. talking to somebody who was, who was you know wanting to, who was struggling to basically to take himself out of lockdown when all his friends were, were more, more relaxed, mm. and uh, you know I was able, I was able to talk him through all the numbers, but at the same time to realise that it's it's not just about the numbers. I mean his feelings about this are real. The therapist was very interesting. She was pointing out that actually we don't perceive risk directly. What we perceive is our fear of the risk. We we perceive our sense of anxiety. uh, We perceive our emotional discomfort. Mm -hmm. And that may be very closely tied to what the real risk is, or it may not. Um, But it is what it is. It's what we perceive. And um, she she was saying actually in in many ways what he had to do was not – take a risk and see what and and then convince himself that he you know he he was fine he hadn't got covid Mm -hmm. what he needed to do was to take a risk and then realize the anxiety hadn't killed him like he'd had that anxiety he'd had that discomfort and he was still there at the end of it so i mean it's it's beyond my expertise but it was a very interesting conversation
0: yeah it's it's interesting and i've been trying to figure out a way to just put it into words since a lot of my audience does you know did come originally for the mental health content but reading and educating myself has helped me so much with these things and and you mentioned risk uh Uh, earlier on when I first started the podcast, I had uh, the author, uh, Michelle Walker on, and, you know, she does all sorts of risk analysis. And, you know, she, her first book was mainly for like businesses and assessing risk and her, her newer book is more about like our personal risk and our, she calls it a risk portfolio. But, Learning about that, and I've even read books from like uh, what's his name, Gert
1: Gigerenzer, I believe. Uh, Yeah, I know I know Gigerenzer's work.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and he talks about risk, and you know, there's so many things that we could just adapt to our daily life, and and it's helped me tremendously. And that's why reading books books like yours and having a better understanding has helped me a ton. And I try to you know get get books like yours out there, like hey, this can help, but. Here's here's something I've been talking about with a, a few other guests uh, as well. Um, you know, I've I've had people like Stuart Ritchie on and some others and talking about bad science and bad data and all that. And I'm curious your opinion on this. Do you think especially, uh, you know, in the age of social media and 24 hour news cycles, do you think that we're just too overloaded? with information. So we just kind of try to find our source and really limit it. So so, because we just don't have the cognitive capacity to be going through all this data and and using all these tools that that people like yourself provide in your book to look at these numbers.
1: Uh, It's hard to generalize. I think Mm -hmm. uh, one thing that people do is that they'll check the numbers compulsively. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've certainly found that in in my own experience (laughs) at certain moments, you just go and check what's happening to the death rate. I mean, the, the, the early weeks of the pandemic where you'd see, oh, goodness me, this is what happened in China. Disaster. This is what happened in Italy. Mm. Disaster. And then you'd be like, well, when's it coming for us? And didn't take long. And you could see these beautiful data visualizations, beautiful but horrible, showing these curves rising. And I remember just going back hour after hour. Have they updated it yet? Have they updated it yet? Mm-hmm. And, and, of course, you, you get through that. I don't still check every hour as to whether they've updated, but but it's that's one way of responding to this overload of information. Is is just um, you want that dopamine hit of yeah. when when's the when's the latest number dropped? Um, but a, another approach, I think, more constructive, is to say um, there are great sources out there that really summarize what we know and you're going to you're going to learn a lot more if you check a really good authoritative source mm. occasionally than if you get the latest hot data um without okay. context uh completely compulsively so for examples of of sources that i find really useful um the cochrane collaboration which i mentioned in the data detective mm-hmm. that's an international network of uh Evidence-based med- medicine specialists, medical statisticians, epidemiologists, and they just review the latest evidence on treatments. So if you're, yeah, if you you want to know whether oh this uh, hydroxychloroquine, there's a lot of talk mm-hmm. about it. You know, it seems to be very very political. You know, some people think it's great, some people say it's useless. Uh, you, you're not going to be able to figure that out by, um, you know, reading through preprints yourself. But you you can find you know, what the Cochrane Collaboration is writing about it. And what they do is they gather together good quality evidence and they summarize it in, in plain plain English and, and other languages too. Mm-hmm. Very often what you know, what you find out is, well, we don't really know. We haven't really done good studies. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that, that takes us to, to what I think is an interesting and underrated point. You mentioned Stuart Ritchie and, and the idea of the you know, there's the sometimes perverse incentives in in academia yeah i think we we really underrate setting up the right kind of infrastructure for gathering good data uh we tend to act as though you know the data are there yeah they're just in some spreadsheet somewhere <laughs> we just pull we pull them out of the internet and then we do the analysis like we've got the you know you get the you get the geeks and the wonks and 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 they analyze yeah. the data but we we don't think enough about where the data come from mm. and it's actually a very important question it for me it's like it's like plumbing you mm. just totally take it for granted but you would notice if there was a problem and it, examples of this are the the early stages of the pandemic not having enough tests, not having a good standard of tests, mm-hmm. not collecting data on how many positive tests there were. I mean, the 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 guys who set up the uh, the COVID tracking project, which is a voluntary effort in the U.S. I mean, they, they, you know, this great rich country, the U.S., is relying on volunteers to put together the data. Mm. They think that really the part of the part of the U.S.'s struggle with this pandemic was simply a failure to just have a proper pipeline that put together all the cases and figured out how many people were testing positive and how many people were testing negative. So Mm. suddenly the enemy is incoming and you don't know where the enemy is. Um, But there were were really positive examples as well. So in the UK, the very early days of the pandemic, a couple of doctors in my home city of Oxford, um, the professors at Oxford University as well, they said, well, look, everyone is going to be throwing every possible treatment at this disease in the hospitals they'll be trying everything Mm -hmm. and we're never going to know what works and what doesn't it's just going to be some political bun fight about oh it's vitamin d it's hydroxychloroquine it's Mm -hmm. ivermectin whatever and we'll never know unless we get organized and with incredible speed they got together and just arranged that whenever a, a, a patient enters a british hospital with COVID and is treated at a British hospital for COVID, just the systems automatically, as you're, you know, registering the patient, you're you know, pulling up the page on the computer and you're saying this patient's here and this is the condition, th- the software just automatically suggests drugs that you might want to try and automatically randomizes. Like there's this drug hydroxy- hydroxychloroquine. Mm-hmm. Maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. So we try it on some patients, and we try, and we don't try it on, on others, and the patients or their families consent. It's amazing how quickly you find out the truth. Yeah. So it turns out, sadly, hydroxychloroquine doesn't really work, but um, a really cheap steroid, dexamethasone, does work very well. That saved well over a million lives. Mm. And that's it's not the it's not the steroid so much that saved the lives. It's the knowledge, and the knowledge was gathered by just getting our head straight on, on the data. And I, I interviewed one of the guys who who did this, and I said, what, is it, what, what does it feel like to know that you have saved a million people's lives? And he was just, well, well, I'm not sure that number's quite right. I think it might be uh, 700,000 or something. It was so, he was so British about it. Um, but yeah, you know, this stuff matters, and we, it's so easy for, it, for us to take it for granted. Um, And I spoke to another epidemiologist recently About Ivermectin Which is another drug that some people say is great And some people say is not Mm. Again, it's become very political And he said, well, we just don't have really good evidence on this Uh, And he said, well, we just have to get used to uncertainty Sometimes we don't know Mm. And I said, well, I mean, yes We do sometimes have to get used to uncertainty And sometimes we don't know, that's right But in this case we've chosen uncertainty. Mm. We could have set up the proper trial. We could have gathered the numbers. We could know by now, I think I'm not exaggerating to say that millions of people have been given this drug, ivermectin, around the world, Mm -hmm. Um, especially in poorer countries, because it's widely available, it's quite cheap, and doctors are thinking, well, give it a try. How can it be 18 months into the pandemic, millions of doses later, and we're still arguing over whether it works. Yeah. That's, a real, that's a real failure. And that shows how, how easy it is to take the data for granted and how important it is to take them seriously.
0: Yeah, it, it's, it's interesting. And, and sometimes I have to get out of my own, just uh, my own personal bubble because, you know, I, I think about just how nerdy I am and I, I read hundreds of books and I, I, I dive into just how is research done and how do they compare and, you know, how do they uh, do controlled studies? And like you're saying, like after millions of, you know, doses, we should have some information, especially if you're like dividing people up and, you know, doing these studies properly. So for, I kind of want to switch gears, and and your book does a great job with this. But I, for everybody out there, I kind of want to go over some of the the tips and tools, like just just the average person out there who's looking at data or coming across data or hearing about data and things like that. Um, some different strategies they can use. So the the first one I want to talk about. Uh and, and it's funny because it stands out to me. I read hundreds of books a year. So yeah. I don't I don't memorize everything, but something from your book, even though I read it when it first came out, like back in February, I believe it was. Um yeah. what, something you said was anytime I'm looking at like data or research or whatever, ask myself, what is missing from this? And that has just stuck with me. Every time I see anything, I'm like, what's missing from this? Uh, you know, like, uh, you know, this study, did it test, you know, uh, both men and women did it test people of, uh, you know, of all ages and all these things. Can you talk a little bit about why that's important to ask what is missing and, you know, some things that we should consider? I I don't know if you have any examples off the top of your head.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's so important and there, and it means all kinds of different things, but I mean, the, the, the most simple and straightforward example is just, uh, a data, a data point, a particular statistic, and that's it. And you say, well, what's missing from this? Well, what's missing from this is the definition. Like, mm. I don't know what's being measured. And what's missing from this is the past. So you're telling me the situation now. What was the situation a year ago, two years ago, 10 years ago, mm. 20 years ago? Um, if that's missing, then it's really hard for me to interpret the, the number. Yeah. Um, then you get more subtle stuff. So, for example, um, very often surveys will just systematically miss a certain group of people. And sometimes that's because of the carelessness of the people doing the survey. And sometimes it's, it, it's for other reasons that are, that are hard to control for. But if you, you think back to both 2016 and 2020, the presidential elections, in both cases, uh, Donald Trump did quite a lot better than the opinion polls suggested. <laughs> right. And in one case, it was the opinion polls were suggesting a narrow Hillary Clinton win, and it turned into a narrow Donald Trump win. In in the the second election, the the opinion polls were suggesting a big Joe Biden win, and it turned into a narrow Joe Biden win. Mm-hmm. But in both cases, there was a similar polling error, you know, against Donald Trump. So what's going on there? Well, I mean, it just turns out that when you're surveying people, you might try to reach fifty thousand people. Mm-hmm. And only get two or three thousand of them to answer the question as a pollster, mm-hmm. and then you're then you're you're kind of hoping that the two or three thousand people are representative of the fifty thousand people that you tried to sample, but they might not be. It might be easier to reach Democrats than Republicans, or maybe Democrats um, will tell you that they're going to vote Democrat, and Republicans are not so keen to mm-hmm. tell pollsters that they're going to vote for Republican for all kinds of reasons. You know, we, we just don't know. And you can try to correct for it, but then you never know whether you're undercorrecting or overcorrecting. correcting mm-hmm. um, If you knew what the answer was going to be, you wouldn't have to, to take the opinion poll all along. Um, and then you go into other questions such as, are there people who are being systematically excluded from research? Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, our, most of our psychological research is done on psychology students. So these are, um, educated by definition they're studying a particular topic and they're studying in American universities so they're not representative of the whole world mm-hmm. there's a really fun example of this in the um, the book Invisible Women by Caroline Criado Perez oh, which is a great book so it's, it's a great book and, and it was a big influence on this particular chapter of the data detective and um, Perez um, points out that um, in the uh, original trial of a drug called uh, sildenafil it, it was supposed to be a drug that would help you with um, certain kind of heart problems and circulatory problems angina, that kind of thing mm-hmm. uh, it didn't really work but uh, what they noticed was that um, the participants in the preliminary trial had this side effect of um, you know, these magnificent erections <laughs> and uh, they realised uh, that sildenafil might not be able to treat chest pains but it could treat erectile dysfunction. Mm. And so they gave it the brand name Viagra or Viagra, and away you go. Okay, well, so far, that's great. It's a kind of heartwarming story of of discovering a drug that's really improved a lot of people's lives kind of by accident. Great. Mm -hmm. Okay, so then more recently, it turns out that maybe Viagra also works very well to alleviate uh, menstrual cramps, so period pain, Mm. which for a lot of women... Um, is extremely debilitating. It's, it really kind of ruins their lives for a couple of days a, a year. Uh, a couple of days a month, rather. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's a big deal. And and if there was a good treatment for it, that, that would be a big deal. And some preliminary trials, we're not sure, but some preliminary stuff suggests, well, actually maybe sildenafil, Viagra, works for period pain. Well, okay, so why didn't we discover that by accident? We didn't discover that by accident because every single one of the participants in that original trial was a man. Oh, wow. Um, now, that's that's not uncommon. I mean, they are trying to improve this, but the fact is it's just much easier to do clinical trials on men because we don't want to do clinical trials on people who are pregnant. Yeah. And um, there's a really easy way to confirm that someone's not pregnant, and it's just to recruit someone who's a man. Mm-hmm. So um, very often you have these drugs that have been tested on men, and then you kind of hope that they work on women as well. But if, if the effect that you're measuring is erectile dysfunction, well then, you know, we never tried on women and we never get to discover yeah. that it turns out it has these cool side effects. So it's a, it's a, it's a, a big issue.
0: Yeah, yeah. Medications. I think that was one of the uh, when I first really got into trying to understand how, you know, uh, experiments are done and things like that. Because uh, I've, you know, uh, I've personally taken antidepressants for a long time, and there's side effects and everything. And you know, I got curious. I'm like, is it even worth it? Like, what are the pros and cons? You know, if it's helping this. And I, I read a book, uh, The Emperor's New Drugs, and it it really opened my eyes to you know the studies and the you know and and kind of like what you're talking about. Even when they're doing uh, these kind of blind studies or double blind studies, there's there's different things that can uh, you know make a person know they they took the actual medication. Like if they have side effects, if they get nauseous, then they clearly didn't take the placebo. So those are things that I try to I try to recognize too. But even when you mention the difference between you know men and women, when I look at you know polling data, it's like if if you know a thousand people were polled at Prager University or uh, BYU which is a very religious school here in the States compared to a thousand people at you know a very progressive liberal school you know the polling data might be very different so so your book uh, absolutely your book and, helps, and opinion, helps pollsters, me
1: that. opinion pollsters know this and if they're incentivized to try to get an accurate result which they sometimes are mm-hmm. they'll try to they'll try to fix it they may not always fix it um because it's hard uh, you know, you can identify the problem. It doesn't mean you can solve it. Um, but we need to remember that sometimes surveys, um, the, the people doing the poll, are not at all motivated to find the true <laughs> right. answer. They want they want to reach a particular conclusion. They want to say that eight out of ten cat owners say their cats prefer this particular brand of cat food mm-hmm. or or whatever. And uh, you know, pharmaceutical companies they want to find that their their, their drugs yeah. work. And so there's a there's a systematic mm-hmm. uh, bias there. Um, the my friend Ben Goldacre who, who wrote a, well he's written several great books but uh, his first book was called Bad Science and his second book was called Bad Pharma mm. and he's, um, he's an expert in evidence based medicine and he, he has a TED talk where he just goes through the uh, the trials of antidepressants and uh, it turns mm-hmm. out that if you look at the, you look at the published record, well, there, there are loads of trials of antidepressants and most of them show that antidepressants are, are effective. And a few show that maybe they're not. When you then go and search harder, you find there's a lot of trials that show <laughs> that antidepressants aren't effective. Now, I'm not saying that antidepressants yeah. aren't effective. Clearly, they're effective for some people and there are trials demonstrating that. But what was interesting was there was just this systematic filter Like if the trial showed that the drug worked, the trial would get published. And then if the trial showed the drug didn't work, then somehow it would kind of evaporate one way or another. So we're working really hard to just improve the, the sort of the publishing infrastructure for this sort of thing and make sure that all of the trials get published. So you see all of the data, which is all we could really want.
0: Yeah, yeah, you talk you talk a bit about you know the the importance of transparency and things like that. But something that I was, you know, uh, pretty pretty shocked by when I started learning about uh, antidepressants. I've actually uh, read some of uh, Ben's work and stuff like that too. Is is especially here in the United States with big pharma just you know being so involved in politics and everything like that. A lot of them aren't even using like outside uh, researchers to run these studies. So. The the research is being funded by the pharmace- uh the pharmaceutical companies. So when you like when you're talking like if you had a batch of uh, you know results that didn't give you the ones that you want, th- those can kind of just disappear. But it makes sense because they're financially you know incentivized. Like they need to get FDA approval, and it's a multi billion dollar industry. And these are just things that we should take into consideration. Because as you mentioned yes, these medications do help some people, but, uh, you know, I, I've worked in addiction treatment and mental health and and some people have bad side effects. You know, there are certain medications that women react really poorly to that are antidepressants. And there's some antidepressants you come off of them and they make you suicidal. So I think it's important that we, we know where the research is, is coming from and any potential internal biases. But you have a whole chapter dedicated to how our feelings get involved. What are, yeah. what are some, you know, biases, like one of some of the biggest biases we should be aware of? And, and what's a way, you know, even a way that you, you kind of pause and check in with yourself to see if your feelings are, you know, getting involved with the way that you're interpreting the data?
1: Uh, absolutely. I mean, it's actually the first chapter of the book and the first piece of advice. The, the way the book is structured is it gives, it gives 10 different pieces of advice, rules of thumb, tools if you like mm-hmm. to think more clearly about the numbers that you see and the, the very first one which I don't think you'll see in many statistics books is that you need to examine your own feelings mm. and the reason you need to examine your own feelings is because your feelings are a huge influence on what you believe uh, so I mean, the most straightforward bias is is, is wishful thinking like you, mm. you, you're just trying to find evidence that whatever you want to be true actually is true um but more generally there's a a a group of biases that you might summarize as as my side bias Mm. so you're you're then you're trying to prove that when you're on the the side of an argument well like those guys are wrong and my guys are right and the most obvious example of this is is in politics but a lot of stuff can be politicized or polarized that isn't obviously political so pe- so for example people argue about particular vaccines not the covid vaccines but other vaccines and f- for no apparent reason some vaccines are kind of a politically polarized and there's like this is a vaccine that the democrats will take and the republicans won't take and then other vaccines are just like well if your doctor tells you to take it you take the vaccine so you know it, it's quite weird but we've we're very tribal creatures we're very social yeah. creatures a lot of our reasoning is used to, to win friends and influence people rather than you know, to figure out the truth about the world. Mm-hmm. And so perhaps we shouldn't be surprised that our, you know, our motives and these social considerations of wanting to, to be on the right side of, of an argument or persuade other people, that those overwhelm the actual facts. Um, now, it's worth pointing out that being more expert doesn't necessarily help you mm-hmm. um, if, you're, if you've got a lot of facts at your disposal and you understand a situation very well, um, but you're also very highly motivated to reach a particular conclusion, the expertise can sometimes make things worse. Yeah, And the, the first story I tell in the book it doesn't actually involve statistics at all. It's the story about um, this artwork, this great artwork, and this art critic, the, the most admired art critic in the world, gazing at this painting... And falling in love with it and because he falls in love with it he's not able mm. to see what he should see which is that it's a it's a forgery but what, what's interesting about it is that his expertise actually makes things worse for him partly because it increases his emotional engagement he so wants it to be the real thing but also he he's able to find like a dozen different reasons really subtle reasons that you or I would never notice, but yeah. a dozen different reasons to believe that that it is real um, and those, those reasons that only his expertise uncovers, they overwhelm, you know, the straightforward fact that it's maybe just not a very good painting and <laughs> maybe not the kind of thing you would expect the great Johannes Vermeer to paint so, I mean, the, the reason that I begin the book with a story about an art forgery rather than a story about numbers is because I think while the book is about numbers and about thinking clearly about numbers, um, you've got to start with just thinking clearly. You've got mm-hmm. to start with figuring out where your emotions are, because if you can't solve that problem, then all the technical advice I could give you, then it's not going to help. Yeah. So first, get your head straight, get your feelings clear. And it's not that difficult. What I find is that uh, just getting into the habit of, of stopping and noticing what am I feeling? I'm on Twitter. I see a statistical claim. What do I feel? Mm. Like does it does it make me feel? Oh, I can't be right. That's not. That's oh yeah. yeah. Those lying guys. They're out there again doing their lies. <laughs> am I am I in denial? Am I feeling? Yes, this just proves I was right. Of course. Yes, I'll better retweet that at once. Um, just taking three seconds to notice your emotional reaction. Mm. Then when you go back and look at the number again, you may feel a bit differently about it. You may think differently about it it's completely fine to have emotions we're emotional and there's no alternative anyway we're emotional creatures but you do have to notice them if you're not noticing that you're in that kind of hot emotional state then you're in trouble
0: yeah yeah absolutely i think that's the the biggest thing that's helped me. I used to, you know, I, I had impulse control problems. So I'd immediately see it. And I just wouldn't recognize it. And actually the practice of like mindfulness meditation, it like helped me slow down. And just like you're saying, just even for three seconds saying, what am I feeling? Why am I feeling this way? Because, you know, we, we, we get all defensive if maybe a number is against like our beliefs or, you know, whatever it is. But uh, I only have a little bit more of your time. So I wanted to ask you something um as a content creator but i think this is beneficial for anybody who's you know looking at numbers for their their work or you know their business or whatever it is uh you know so not only do i have a youtube channel in this podcast but i work in marketing by day and um something that i maybe i've maybe become obsessed over in the last year is Uh, looking at, you know, just kind of the balance between success and luck, right? And I can dive really into my own data and analytics, and it feels like sometimes it's difficult to pinpoint what a certain factor is, right? So if something, let's say a YouTube video performed very well, right? well is it you know was it the title that got it a bunch of clicks or was it the thumbnail the artwork that i did and it, and and finding that little that little thing or was it just a complete random occurrence and this might be something yeah. you know that that takes hours to even break down and analyze but if you had 5 minutes to say chris here's how you can kind of separate the luck of the experience from you know what actually worked what what should what should we be looking for in our own data yeah
1: it it's a great question, and it's also a it's a very difficult question. <laughs> but it, I think the, the, the first thing to observe is that um, there is likely to be a lot of luck in the way that a lot of online content is is structured, because um, some stuff goes viral because it goes viral, right? Mm-hmm. There's a it's got its own momentum, and there's a there's actually a really elegant illustration of this by. Uh, a group of mathematical sociologists, uh, Duncan Watts and uh, Matthew Salganik. I was just going to ask you if you knew about yeah. Duncan Watts. I loved his yeah, book. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a, the, the, his books are great. Um, and we, it, for those for those listeners who haven't heard this particular experiment, what they did was they they basically uploaded some songs and they asked people to rate the songs. Um, but they divided the people participating in this experiment into uh, one kind of treatment where everybody uh just rated the songs independently you listen to some songs you mm-hmm. rate them and and that's it but the the other half of the experiment people would were, were pulled into these little groups um where they'd be rating the songs but they'd also see everyone else's rating uh, and they had several of these groups i think there were possibly 10 of them and what they found was if you just ask people independently and they never get to see what other people are seeing and what other people are rating, mm-hmm. you get a good kind of measure of what people actually think about the underlying quality of a song. Um, but then when you look at the these little small worlds um, where people are observing the chart, they're observing what's popular and what's not, um, suddenly the results get really chaotic. <laughs> and you can have worlds where songs that are not very well rated uh, by independent observers Go viral. You have very often songs that are, you know, you know, people think are great songs, and and they they never take off. So that's an, an illustration that, that where there's luck in the underlying mm-hmm. performance, that luck can be massively magnified by the social network structure and the fact that you know whatever's go whatever's happens to be popular gets amplified by the algorithms and so on. Yeah. Um, all that said, you can run experiments. Um so you can uh you can give different videos uh different titles or or the same video different titles and see which one works. Um you can that sort of A B testing. It's not something I've ever personally found that I, I want to devote the time to do. Mm. But that sort of optimization really does start to help you tease apart um whether there are any patterns, whether longer videos do better than shorter ones, yeah. whether a kind of a clickbaity title does does better than a title that you know kind of gives, gives tells people exactly what's in the video, mm. etc. Um, that sort of experimentation is going to be informative. Um, I mean, if there's a lot of noise and a lot of randomness, there'll be a lot of noise and a lot of randomness. But you, you only stand a chance of of pulling out the patterns if you. If you generate a lot of different experiments and you mm. take a step back and really look at the data um, as I say, it's not something I've ever found myself tempted to do but i I understand the the motivation to do it and I think if you're going yeah. to do it, you have to do it right
0: yeah so so just real quick answer from you so you 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 you, you write books you write articles you have a podcast, so with your own work, do you kind of just not pay too much attention to it and not like if you have an article that you write or a book just flop you know like do you just not really give it too much attention and just keep moving forward
1: yeah i i that's what i try to do i mean of course i'm interested in whether things are doing well or not mm. um and you know i i like to know how many downloads the cautionary tales podcast has got but it's not like i check that every day like every now and then i'll check in with my producer and say how how we're we doing um you know, if if a, my, the latest book, the Data Detective, it's done very well in the UK. It's been on the um, the bestseller list here in the UK for a while now. Mm-hmm. Um, the number one bis- business best selling book for the last two months. So, mm, obviously, awesome. I care. I care about that. I mean, I ca- of course, I care about that. I care about <laughs> being successful. I care about the the monetary income, and and it's just great to know that people are out there being exposed to to my ideas. But ultimately. You know, not everything works, yeah. and you have to focus on producing ideas, writing narrative that that you're proud of. Yeah. Um, it, the, the the other stuff you can't control. Mm. You can try, you can influence it, but in the end, the only thing that you can control is the quality of your own work.
0: I love it. I absolutely love it. What a what a great. Place to end too, Tim. So again, thank you so much for your time and everybody out there. Um, where can they find you? Uh and are you working on anything upcoming? You working on a new book or focusing on the podcast? Where what should we be looking out for?
1: Sure. So my website is TimHarford.com. So it's not Hartford, it's Harford, TimHarford.com. That's got links to everything else that I do, the BBC, Mm. the FT, the Caution Tales podcast. I'm on Twitter. Um, but uh, what am I working on? Well, a new season of Cautionary Tales. And uh, I'm working on a, a, a version of the Data Detective for younger readers, uh, maybe aged between 10 and 12. Ah. And that, that promises to be a really interesting new project. Um, it's in the early days, but I think I'm going to learn a lot and I'm looking forward to it. That, that'd that be awesome. I have a 12-year-old son, so that'd be that'd be perfect. Excellent. excellent. Let's try and see if, see if he can give us some comments then. Yeah,
0: absolutely. So yeah, I'll, I'll make sure he, he does a little review of it. Uh, but again, thank you so much for your time, Tim. And I'll link all that stuff down in the description below. But yeah, thanks again. And I'm sure we'll talk again real soon.
1: My pleasure. Thanks, Chris. Yeah.
0: All right, everybody, there you have it. That was my conversation with the one and only Tim Harford. So I hope... I hope you learned a bit, but most of all, I hope it made you curious about these things because, like I said, like this is something that I spent most of my life just looking at data or just hearing about polls and research and stats and studies and stuff, and I was just like, eh, you know, and I just took them at face value, but it's a little bit more nuanced than that, and this doesn't by any means, they, like every time you hear a number, you got to get all skeptical and just dive into it, but as you heard in this conversation, Tim has some suggestions just to, just to kind of look at these things and just, you know, just little real quick questions we can ask ourselves, all right? So make sure you head down to the description below. Make sure you're following Tim over on Twitter, grab a copy of his book, Data Detective, and yeah, I've linked his uh, some of his other books, his podcast, Cautionary Tales, so make sure you go check that stuff out, and I recently just finished one of his other books called Adapt, and it's all about why, you know, success begins with failure, and it was a great book too, so that'll be linked down below as well, and maybe he'll come back on and we can discuss that, but yeah. Huge, huge thanks to Tim for coming on. So, yeah, while you're down in the description, again, if you're not yet, make sure you're following me on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul. And if you're new to the podcast or you've been listening for a while, but you're not yet, make sure you're following or subscribed, whether you're on. Spotify or Apple, and if you're on Apple, leave a rating, leave a review, and if you like this episode, you think it might be of use to some other people, make sure that you share it because following, subscribing, rating, reviewing, sharing, all that stuff, it helps the algorithms push this podcast out to some more people. All right. Whether people are readers or people who just like to learn, you know, we've we've been covering some important topics. So when you share and all that other stuff, it really helps the podcast reach some new people out there. All right. But yeah, for anybody who would like to support the podcast in any way, and my Insane reading habit to help fund these books that I get. Uh, yeah, there's uh, some ways to support down in the description. You can become a patron. You can get some of the books that I have self-published. A lot of them are on mental health. They're available at therewiredsoul.com. And speaking of mental health, there is also a link down there. It's an affiliate link for BetterHelp online therapy. All right, uh, as we discussed in this, you know, episode, uh, I've been on antidepressants, but for you know my, my well-being, I have to do other things, right? And one of those things is therapy, and BetterHelp Online Therapy is a service that I've personally used. So if you want to work with a licensed therapist, it's affordable, you do it from the comfort of your home, own home, check out that affiliate link for BetterHelp Online Therapy. All right, so another huge, huge thanks to Tim. Make sure you grab a copy of his books and follow him, it's down in the description, but most of all, Thank you to all of you. Like, I I truly am grateful for anybody who sits through an entire hour uh, (laughs) or so when I do these longer episodes and stuff. So I really, really appreciate you. And, yeah, I love connecting with all of you. So... Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired So, all right. But I hope you have an awesome, awesome rest of your day. And tomorrow I have another brand new episode. And this one is going to be a little, a little bit different. Uh, And if you like to write or you're interested in writing, you're really going to enjoy this episode. All right. So stay tuned. All right. So thanks again. And I will see you in the next one.